Thank you for downloading the Global and Imperial History Research Seminar podcast presented by the University of Oxford's History Faculty. It's a great pleasure to be here and thank you all for coming. A very good turnout on a Friday evening. Thank you very much. Um, this project represents a little bit of a departure for me, as Judith then indicated. Um, it arose from uh, work I was uh, able to undertake last year while based uh, temporarily in Nairobi with the British Institute in East Africa. And it's now being continued under a, a grant that we've been fortunate enough to receive from the Leverhulme Trust. Uh, the project really was a, an attempt to look at the broader history of northern Kenya and what I call uh, uh, the land beyond. Because there's a joke in Kenya that uh, once you cross north of Isiolo, when you meet a local, the first thing they say to you is, how are things in Kenya? <laughs> because they don't actually believe that they've ever been properly integrated into the state of Kenya. Uh, for many years, the region was under military administration. It still spends much of its time under martial law. And it's always been treated in Kenya as a thing apart. And the people of the north very much feel that. They are predominantly, though not entirely, a Muslim population. And they do see their religion as being part of that alienation, part of that failure to integrate with the modern state of Kenya. And in many ways, those people to the north, they do not look toward Nairobi. Rather, they look away from it, towards other things, other connections, other trade routes, other links. And that, I think, is very important. So I was hoping, while I was in Nairobi, to, to establish some some. some some research activities under a broad program that looked at the history of the North. And we managed to get uh, several things underway, and I'm going to draw on bits of those things in what I say tonight. So first I'd just like to acknowledge that I was not alone in this project. There were several others involved in gathering the material, many of them uh, graduate trainees working through the auspices of the British Institute, but also other local scholars who assisted us and particularly James Smith, who is, who is here with us tonight, who did the bulk of the archive work on what I'm going to talk about and was very, very energetic and assiduous in retrieving materials from the Kenya National Archive. Ryan Keyes, who isn't here with us tonight, but she did a lot of work for us in the, in the Public Records Office, as I still call it, in Kew. Um, and Faisia Balim, who may be here tonight, who's one of our MSc students, who is now writing a dissertation looking at the earlier period of what I'm going to talk about with the Imperial East Africa Company. And then Emma Lockery, who I think is here, and, and Hannah Elliott, who is now at SOAS, who, along with um, Hassan Kochero and Badia Sharifali, two colleagues in Kenya, conducted a series of life history interviews in northern Kenya. And I sent them off to do the interviews thinking we'd be lucky to get 20. They ended up getting around 140 interviews of just enormous quality and uh, fantastic material that we're still in all honesty, working our way through and coming to grips with. And also Neil Carrier, who I think is here, who's been involved with me for the past year and more on various research projects, including now a study of the Somali community of Eastleigh, which some of you will know in Nairobi is known as Little Mogadishu, and is really the financial and commercial hub of the Somali diaspora in Eastern Africa as a whole. So all of those people have contributed to some way in parts of this project. So let me now say a little bit more about what I'm going to talk about tonight. Well, really my focus is on the beginning of 
the Somali expansion through East Africa in the late 19th century. And I've taken in my focus what I would call the age of conquest from around 1880 to 1930. And I'm going to focus on an area known as Jubaland. Uh, I've got a, 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 a PowerPoint with a map on it, but um, knowing this is history faculty, I bought printouts as well, <laughs> just as well. So uh, if you can take one of these and pass them on. And this is a historic map, so uh, no apologies for the fact that it was handwritten because it was compiled by a military intelligence officer. And as you'll see, that's, that's got some, some traction in the story I'm going to tell. This is a map from around 1917. And what it shows in the embossed area is the, the, what's called the province of Jubaland. And the, the hard, dark line, uh, as you look at the map to the right, to the east, is the border of Kenya as it was up until 1924. Because Jubaland province was then part of the East African Protectorate that became Kenya. In 1924, that whole province was handed over with a huge sigh of relief by the British to their Italian counterparts. And so southern Somalia doubled in size instantaneously. And you'll just, if you're wondering why the British were relieved to get rid of it, I'll be explaining shortly. So <clears throat> that's the focus of, of, of my talk tonight, looking at what happened in this, in this one province. Um, I often refer to it as Kenya's forgotten province because most Kenyans don't even know it was ever part of Kenya. And they will argue with you that you can't be right when you say that it was because it is so much thought of as part of Somalia and part of Somalia's history. And in fact, if you look at the histories of Kenya that have been written by Kenyan scholars and indeed by others, this province is hardly ever even mentioned and the period of its incorporation in the East African Protectorate, which after all lasted 30 years from 1895 until 1925, is not even referred to. And even the historians of Somalia don't quite know what to do with it in that period, because it's not really in their domain either. And moreover, there's a lack of archives for the British period available anywhere else. And sources have been a problem that explains, I think, partly why this province has been forgotten. Because the Jubilant <coughs> records have only recently been rediscovered, partly thanks to James Smith's excellent work in Nairobi, having been lost for many years, certainly since the early 1980s, because they were miscatalogued when the digitization took place of the Kenyan National Archives. And instead of appearing in the section they should have appeared in, they were subsumed into the middle of a different section. And because of the way that the very primitive search engine on that archive search engine works, you can't access them any other way than finding them by accident. So calling up a word search might accidentally get you one of those files. And that's how we found them. We were looking for something else. Up came one of the Jubaland files. And I happened to say, what's that doing there? And we then went in and found other files around it and discovered 500-plus files in a Jubaland deposit referring to this period. So it's those records that I'm primarily going to base what I'm going to say tonight upon. Now, as I've said, what I'm going to say is very much a work in progress, and I'm trying to develop three themes. And the themes are not all equally well developed at this stage because we're still working with the data. But let me try and explain what the themes are because I think they'll give you a sense 
of what this history might, might begin to look like once it's fleshed out. The first theme, of course, is, is Islam. Now, in the recounting of this period of conquest in Eastern Africa, Islam is rarely seen by historians as a significant factor. In an earlier period, perhaps, before 1880, the negotiations with the Sultanate of Zanzibar, that is considered important. But from the 1890s onwards, Islam kind of fades away as a political issue that has not really been looked at in great depth by historians, certainly of the Kenyan coast, although perhaps those working in Tanganyika further south have been much more aware of it. The complicity of the Zanzibari Sultanate in the initial foothold secured by the British at the coast and the recruitment of coastal Swahili foot soldiers into the militia of the Imperial <coughs> British East African Company have been viewed by some of Kenya's historians, certainly, as signs of capitulation, and therefore not the kind of nationalist history they wish to write about. In Kenya's heroic lexicon of resistance leaders, there is therefore no Islamic figure worthy of note. And I think that is really rather shameful. After 1895, Kenya's subjugation is too often presented as a rapid and relatively bloodless conquest in which the coast was simply easily placated and became acquiescent. This, however, ignores many protracted struggles that took place not just at the coast, but elsewhere in colonial Kenya. In the Kalenjin areas of Kenya's western highlands, for example, where rebellion was not suppressed until 1923. In the Takana region of the far <coughs> northwest, where conquest was only finally completed in 1921, and, my subject tonight, along the eastern and northeastern marches of Kenya, where Somali and Buran refused to be cowed by British coercion or control, the Somali fighting a resistance against British occupation in Jubaland that lasted some 30 years and succeeded in expelling the forces of the would-be coloniser. So this is the one story of conquest failure in Eastern Africa, and it's the one story that isn't in the textbooks. In this story of prolonged resistance to the imperial domination in Jubaland, I'll be focusing on Islam as a mobilising feature of that resistance. And I confess at the moment, its full ramifications we don't completely understand, because that's going to require, I think, some oral history and some interrogations of a different kind. But my second theme is imperialism. And here I think perhaps the plural imperialisms might be more appropriate. Because on the Juba in the late 19th century, there were three imperialisms. British, yes, but also Italian, and also, and very importantly, Ethiopian. The boundaries of British colonies to the north of East African Protectorate were actually never properly designated during this conquest, and remain uncertain even today. The Maud Treaty that supposedly settled the boundary between Kenya and Ethiopia in 1907 has never been ratified, even now. And there are several different border disputes along that frontier that are recognised by the African Union as being potentially volatile. Now, the British obsession with boundaries, and perhaps with questions of sovereignty, were not shared by their Italian or Ethiopian neighbours, who, op who operated a different kind of imperialism in this part of the world. The Italians were concerned primarily with building trade on the Juba and Shabeli valleys. But they never sought to control it in the way the British did, 
they were happy to take their percentage off the trade without taxing the traders. They were less exacting in their type of imperialism, and they saw no real need for territorial control in order to manage this trade, so long as the trade was coming through the main entrepôts that they were establishing. So the Italians, I think, to local Somalis, and certainly one picks this up in the archive, seemed a little more benign than the British, who were always trying to curtail and prevent people from moving. British liked everybody nice and sedentary, stay in the same place. Not something Somali herders are particularly keen to do. The British also liked to tax Somalis and tried to tax traders by setting up blockades in the two main ports of Kismayu and Lamu, actually charging traders to enter the port from the land side in order to sell their goods to Arab traders who were coming into these ports. No one else did this, just the British. So British imperialism along the Juba came to be seen by local people as essentially punitive in economic terms, and also, as I will explain, punitive also in military terms. The Ethiopians, in contrast to both European powers, treated the Sultan of Aden as a kind of fiefdom of raiding and pillage, provoking and fueling local conflicts as quickly as the British and Italians sought to snuff them out. The Ethiopians allowed, indeed encouraged, their border barons to extract as much surplus as they could by plunder, and they made no effort at all to establish a proper administration or to tax. Indeed, the whole, the whole system of Ethiopian imperialism on the southern marches was a system that really gave territories to barons who could run them as they wished, could hire their own mercenary forces, and could trade or tax or exact as they chose to. The British, however, as they did throughout all of Kenya, concentrated on the subjugation of local warring tribes in an effort to secure and protect their so-called allies in order to foster what they termed a stable administration. So the British were always looking for stability, for security. But in this contested terrain, there was never really any clear imperial sovereignty. And the British strategy turned out to be the least successful of the three because no one locally, not even those who purported to be Britain's allies, would recognize that sovereignty. So as Juba's people shifted geographical locations and shifted allegiances in response to imperial incursions and opportunities, capturing wells, controlling grazing, avoiding taxation and other exactions, the British became everyone's bane. Too controlling, too interfering, and ultimately too weak and fickle to cope with the cut and thrust of predation and tribute that governed this part of the world. For the local peoples, those two terms, predation and tribute, were the key to politics. Larger groups sought to exact tribute from smaller groups. The agriculturalists living along the riverine basins of the Shabeli and the Juba, known locally as Wagosha, were often taxed by Somali neighbours, who sometimes were thought to have enslaved them. Often the Europeans described this as a form of slavery, but it was really a, a, a form of tribute. My third theme then, transnational history. Well, this term can, I think, mean many different things. But here I think the term has considerable resonance because this was a struggle that rejected the sovereignty of any nation or state, ignoring borders and jurisdictions. The boundaries of states were in the process of being defined here in 1900, but they still haven't been defined properly today. So the continuing 
transnational character of this area is very apparent, even, even as we speak. And understandings of what nation meant also were fickle in this area and undefined. It is to be doubted that the Somali speakers of this region ever accepted a notion of sovereignty beyond their own local allegiances. And I would even argue that it wasn't until the Saibari state of the late 1960s and 1970s that there was any real attempt to form a, consorted, a concerted notion of Somali sovereignty. At one level, the leaders of resistance in Jubaland appealed to the higher principles of Islamic culture and faith to reject European incursions. At another level, they mobilized and deployed local affiliations with the imperialists in order to secure advantages against their local rivals and enemies. Time and again then, the British would find themselves betrayed by local allies who played one imperial power off against another, <coughs> and all the time uncertain as to who people's loyalties were. And as I'll come on to in a moment, intelligence gathering knowledge about this area was really very flimsy. And the British and the Italians together struggled to get a real understanding of what the dynamics of this politics were. Now, for local people, this agency in tight corners was so effective that it eventually exhausted British patience and British resources, culminating in the retreat from Jubaland at the end of 1924. By that date, the military administration of this region was costing an astonishing £45,000 sterling per year. That is more than the budget for the rest of British East Africa put together for military expenditure. Officially, Jubaland was given back to the Italians in 1924 as a diplomatic gesture in reward for their support in the 1914-18 war. But unofficially, the British military were delighted by then to rid themselves of an expensive and utterly unrewarding territory. So those are the three themes we're trying to play through this story. Let me now flesh out a little bit of the narrative of what actually happened in Jubaland to give you a sense of, of these events. And then I'm going to conclude with a brief discussion about the current situation in Jubaland, because I see some parallels between this historic experience that maybe we might be able to learn from if indeed lessons of history are valid at all. So let's turn to the narrative. Well, Jubaland first came onto the view of, and I should stress now, I'm going to delve into these British archives in Kenya, so I, my focus will be <coughs> on the British activity, and I will mention Ethiopian and Italian things only in the margins. So if we look at the British involvement with Jubaland, it begins in 1890 with the first interest shown in Jubaland by the Imperial British East Africa Company. This trading company, the chartered company, is set up to exploit the economic resources of East Africa. And it is involved in establishing a number of different economic entrepôts along the East African coast after signing a treaty with the Sultan of Zanzibar. Because there are several Omani Arab traders who, who occupy and run trading houses in the port of Kismayo, the Sultan of Zanzibar has a, a slender claim to some authority in the city. But he is by no means the only sheikh who might claim such authority, because the city does not have a coherent political control. It's rather made up of a confederation of smaller groups. This doesn't present, prevent the Sultan, however, awarding Kismayo to the Imperial British African Company in 1890. 
and giving them permission by treaty to establish a trading post there and to establish what amounted to a government. Their interest in this was twofold. Firstly, they had heard that there was slaving on the Juba River and they wished to put an end to the slave trade. But secondly, they had heard that the Juba River held fantastic economic opportunities. It was, according to all reports, a breadbasket, a fertile and healthy place where cereals and legumes could be grown for sale and export all around the region. Now, as you will have guessed from my tone, this was a somewhat exaggerated portrayal, as the Juba River Valley is highly volatile to flash floods, and the cultivation that goes on in it is, in fact, managed through flood retreat agriculture. So it's a rather fragile and somewhat vulnerable system of production, although managed correctly, and at its peak, it can be enormously productive. But it doesn't conform to what a European conception <coughs> might be of a regularized and uh, uh, exploitable uh, agricultural resource. <coughs> so the Imperial British East Africa Company, in league with a number of private investors, enters Kismayu in the summer of 1891, establishing a small fort uh, near the town uh, from which the company runs its affairs. Uh, despite the good offices of the Sultan of Zanzibar, uh, they are not exactly welcomed. Local traders initially shun the company and <coughs> shun other traders who agree to trade with it, placing the local Omanis in somewhat of a political difficulty. So alliances are being divided from the very start. Kismayo, by then, of course, is a thriving port with multiple traders from all around the Indian Ocean, including traders from the Gulf and from the shores of South Asia. It's a port that trades in many different currencies, in many different goods, and it's linked to other ports of the Red Sea Littoral and the Gulf area, such as Mogadishu, Berbera, Aden, and so on. So the traders here already have a very active and well-developed trading system and trading network. They don't need these British imperialists who are not welcome. So the Imperial British African Company essentially finds itself frozen out by a cartel of local traders who refuse to interact with it in any meaningful way. So the resident put in charge of the company's headquarters at Kismayo is forced to try and muscle his way into this trade using his locally recruited Askari, who are mainly Indian troops and Swahili troops that he has at his disposal. <clears throat> so conflict inevitably emerges in Kismayo before the end of the first year, 1891. This continues to 1892, with the company making ever smaller profits and struggling to establish itself. And by 1893, open hostility breaks out when the local company resident tries to corral local traders in a barraza, a local meeting, to agree certain terms for trading with the company, and a fight breaks out. In the fight, three local traders and a number of local Somali are killed, and Kismayo is burning by the end of the evening. The Imperial Beach Staff and Company Officials have to be rescued by the Royal Navy the next day, and parts of the city are bombarded. Not an auspicious start. In the summer of 1893, the company then builds a stronger, this time, stone fort outside of uh, Kismayo, this time overlooking the cultivation area of the river, where they feel they've got greater control over the local population. And now they set up a strategy saying, OK, if the local traders and local, um, and local Somali won't befriend us, 
will go to the agriculturalists. So they move into the riverine area and they befriend the Wagosha. The Wagosha are the cultivators along the river who are treated by the Somali as a subservient group who are taxed by them, who are tithed by them. Many of these communities are quite happy to break free of that and to align themselves with a company in return for protection, which they do. The question then is, can the company protect them? The answer is no, because during 1893, a series of raids begin on these communities, mounted by their former masters, seeking to get back their suzerainty over these productive lowland riverine areas. So the company all round is basically fomenting nothing but trouble around Kismayo, and is unable really to get a grip on its own events. Conditions become so difficult at the fort over the course of the early months of 1893 that the local garrison of troops supporting the Imperial Beach East African Company finally mutiny. They murder the local Imperial Beach African Company collector and they desert, joining a local Somali clan, taking with them the contents of the Imperial Beach East African Company's armory and trading room. They were cleaned out completely. This group then collaborated with the local Somali group who attacked the residency in Kismeo and tried to kill the remaining British officials. They were only repelled after a quite fearful battle. And it's recounted in several of the archives. So, by the time the end of 1893 comes, the company's ambitions in Kismeo are in tatters and there has been no real imperial advance here whatsoever. A year later, the British government finally takes over responsibilities for East Africa from the company. The company is declared bankrupt, hands back its charter, and the British government declares a protectorate over Eastern Africa, which includes Jubaland. And Jubaland becomes the northeastern province of the East African protectorate, which will then, in 1923, be renamed as Kenya. <coughs> so, what was the situation in the 1890s when the British government formally take over this area? Well, they immediately decide to garrison it, not with a civilian administration, but with a military administration, which they are doing throughout the northern region, because this region is difficult to control. <coughs> they send <coughs> troops, the King's African Rifles, up to um, Jubaland, and the reports that they bring back start to accumulate a sense of intelligence about what is going on in the area. Essentially, over the first few years, the local Somali groups are divided by the British into two categories, enemies and friends. The enemies include the Malahan section, who are considered to be truculent and are described in all the usual colonial terms of assertive natives who won't do what they're told, and live predominantly to the northern region. You'll see them marked on your map. And they're rumored to have connections with the warlike Somali of the Ogaden. <clears throat> the Ogadenis are always stigmatized in British reports as being warlike dervishes who, have, uh, who are not controlled and ill-disciplined, etc., etc. But, of course, fiendishly good warriors because they keep defeating the British. We'll come to that in a moment. The Alahan, the Alahan another Somali section to the south, nearer to Kismayu, are considered French because in one of the first military patrols made from Kismayu after 1895, their local sheikh decides to sign a peace treaty with the British. What this treaty meant to him, we can only but imagine. What the British thought it meant was that he was agreeing that his sovereignty would be subservient to that of Britain. 
There is no evidence whatsoever that that understanding was ever shared by him because his behaviour suggested exactly the opposite. But throughout the next 10 years, <clears throat> the British essentially tried to run their administration through using individuals such as the Sheikh to manage local disputes and control things for them. And what they really wanted was to control smooth trade into Kismayu so they could then tax the traders in the town. And over the years, they gradually moved out of Kismayu up the river, establishing other posts as they went as trading posts. And the same pattern followed each of these. A military garrison was put in place, and that garrison tried to make alliances with local sheikhs around about in order to secure free trade into the post. While they are doing this up the west bank of the Juba, the Italians are doing it up the east bank. And if you look at your map, you'll see that there are several points where Italian posts are directly opposite British posts on the same bank of the river. <clears throat> now, that introduced some interesting possibilities because, of course, the Italians were not taxing trade in their towns at the same rate as the British were taxing trade in their towns. <laughs> so, of course, people kept moving across the river. So the British became obsessed with sovereignty and with this boundary and trying to stop people moving across it because they realized that they were leaving in order to avoid the exactions of British rule. Now, those exactions, as far as the military were concerned, were payment for protection in their eyes. But these Somali groups, I think, in their own eyes, would have viewed that they needed no protection, least of all from this flimsy army of British miscreants who really weren't very well equipped to protect themselves, never mind anyone else. So there's constant tension along this frontier, and things never really work out quite the way the British expect them to. <clears throat> now, if I can say just something more about the Wagosha, because the Wagosha, the, the riverine cultivators, <coughs> are the group the British have most success in making alliances with, because they are the weakest group in the area. They are the group who have the most to benefit, perhaps, from the intervention of outsiders. <clears throat> now, it's quite difficult in the early documents to get a grip on who the Wagosha really are. They're often described as not true Somali. They're often described as not speaking proper Somali. <coughs> it's recognized that many of them are of Bantu stock. And gradually the British work out that some of these are the descendants of slaves who have been brought up <coughs> in the Jebeli and Juba valleys from further south in Africa by Arab traders in the earlier part of the 19th century. And as the Imperial Company early on had, had liberated some of these former slaves and freed them, um, some of the Somalis and some of the Arabs, the Arab traders who owned some of these slaves, rather than lose them to this intervention, they had sold them back out into the market. So on several occasions, um, so-called Gala slaves turn up on ships being apprehended on the East African coast. And these are usually Wagosha from the Juba Oshabele valleys. And some of them, they confuse the people who find them because they often bear markings that would identify them with the northern Tanzanian area or languages that would identify them with that area. But they're in fact coming from the Shebele and Juba area. And they're often referred to as Gala. They are not really Gala at all. So the nomenclature is a bit confusing. So um, the, the British military are not interested really in liberated slaves or in anything to do with that, but they're certainly interested in preventing slavery. So at several points when the Wagosha feel challenged by local Somali neighbors, they play the slavery card. 
and they invite the British to protect them from being enslaved by the Somali. So a discourse emerges in the British records that, that in fact, they are protecting this region from the slave trade. There's no evidence this is actually true, other than the assertions of the Margosha that they are being subjected to this. And my reading of this at the moment is that, is that I think there's a bit of a false game going on. <coughs> I'm not sure this really is any kind of slavery at all, but it's simply a tribute system <coughs> operating in the area. So, <coughs> other than the Wagosha, who really do need protecting, no one welcomes the British. Two punitive expeditions are mounted by the military in 1896 to establish their control of the area. It's felt after the denouement of the company that a show of force needs to be made. Um, so, at points of a maximum, <coughs> several Somali sheikhs ostensibly submit to British control and sign treaties of friendship with Britain all the way up the river as far as Lug. And the, 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 the British are attempting to get the navigable part of the river open to trade by securing these alliances all the way up. And they do this, as I say, at the point of a, at the point of a maximum gun. But repeated attacks on traders and on the British posts over the next few years show that these arrangements don't really have any, sustenance, any, any sustainability at all. By the beginning of 1897, the British acknowledge that their interests being protected in this region will require a significantly larger military presence. And for the first time, the administration in Nairobi starts cottoning on to quite how much this is costing. And the first debates emerge about the costs of this imperial frontier. And it turns out that even in 1897, Jubaland is already eating up a disproportionately large part of East African prote protectorate's very small budget. Now let's turn mm -hmm. and look a little bit at what we can find out from these records about these local alliances. Who, who are these people? Who are the British getting engaged with? Well, one of the most prominent figures who comes out of this story is Abdul Rahman Mursal, who is rec recognized by the British from the start as a, a leading sheikh, although they can't quite work out which Somali group he belongs to to begin with. And they think he has great influence because he tells them so. He keeps coming into Kismayo and offering his services in various ways. But then, having been rejected, British intelligence in 1897 and 1898 picks up nuances that this gentleman is involved in various schemes to attack traders, to extract from the Wagoshi, and in fact, he's generally what they call in one report, a bit of a bad hat. <laughs> and in fact, in April 1898, they get substantive evidence that Mursal leads an attack by Ogaden Somalis on the British military post at Yonte that overruns the garrison. This is followed by a series of further attacks that Mursal is also identified with. And in fact, it's worth noting that the British were to lose more soldiers in Jubaland between 1895 and 1914 than they lost in the rest of the conquest of the entirety of Kenya. In these, I'm not going to go through all the attacks for you, but there are about 30 different incidents in which soldiers are lost. And that's quite unusual for Kenya's <coughs> conquest story. In June 1898, for example, a company of the Bombay Rifles was ambushed by Abdurrahman's men uh, and suffered very heavy losses, more than half the numbers killed. And that was fairly typical. In the military reports, every three or four months, there's an attack of that kind going on somewhere along the river. And many of these attacks, they begin to realize, appear to be quite cunningly laid. There are ambushes. There are, they seem to know where the British are going. And the military gradually senses that they're getting intelligence 
on what the British are doing, and they're using it to make <coughs> At this point, we have to introduce into the story things from further north, because in towards the end of 1898, the first signs of rebellion are heard in British Somaliland to the north, and the campaign that some of you will know as the war against the Mad Mullah, Sheikh Abdul Hassan, begins towards the end of 1898. Now, that's quite a long way from here, north, geographically. And I think James and I were a bit surprised getting into the archives to discover that this campaign did, in fact, percolate all the way into the Jubert Valley. And the reason for that is that as the Mullahs' forces retreated from their first assault in Somaliland, they went south into the Ogaden and were eventually pushed further south by Ethiopian forces. And they ended up coming down towards Luk in the Marahan areas to the, in the northern portion of Jubaland. And there, they tried to recruit local Somali to their cause. In fact, all the way down through the Ogaden, they recruited local Somali, and the Mullah's forces grew considerably as a consequence. So this came as far south as the northern part of Jubaland. Here, they were, they were not only recruiting men, but also food and supplies including cattle and camels. And the British began to hear in early 18, late 1899 rumours that the Mullah was in fact recruiting forces in the Lug area from people who were allegedly allies of the British. In response, the British increased their garrisons in Jubaland, thereby increasing the cost greatly to the Kenya administration, which they very much were annoyed by because this was, after all, a rebellion in Somaliland, not in Kenya. And they stepped up their intelligence gathering, using a whole series of local intermediaries, including, of course, the highly suspect Abdul Rahman, who by this time had decided to sign one of those treaties with the British military and was recognised as a British agent. Now, of course, Abdul Rahman was playing it both ways. He was being paid a salary by the British. He was doing whatever he liked with his local forces. And unbeknown to the British for the next two years, he was at the same time also receiving a salary from the Italians for exactly the same actions. Agency in tight corners. Um, so, as the British set up their network of spies to report on events in the Ogaden and in the north, they were quite heavily dependent upon a man who was, to put it bluntly, not a double but a triple agent. And he was supplying them with most of their intelligence network. Now, all of this is recorded in intelligence handbooks that survive in the archive, handwritten by the military officers who were gathering the intelligence from local informants. Of course, we can't know exactly what was said. This is all written in English. One assumes there are all kinds of intermediaries, but they are fascinating documents nonetheless, and I think they were some of the most fascinating that we, we discovered. So as this network of spies among the Ogaden Somalis spreads out to the military posts in Jubaland, British officers record all this information in these bound notebooks that have survived in the National Archive. And the books do provide a fascinating glimpse of the extent of British ignorance and confusion and their fragility in the hands of local intermediaries whose knowledge they must completely depend upon. So even when there are things in these notebooks that we know must are entirely spurious, British often act on them because they have no alternative sources of information. So the limits of this intelligence are very apparent. So on more than one occasion, the British actually stumble into carefully laid traps 
and twice assaults were mounted on British redoubts after the bulk of a garrison had been drawn away on the basis of spurious intelligence gathered in this way. So there's even evidence in these records that the intelligence is being used purposefully to mislead the British into actions that they shouldn't take. Marcel, Abdurrahman Marcel eventually came under suspicion of all this as a result of these events. But in April 1903, the interception of a letter authored by Mullah Abdullah Hassan to the sheikhs and mullahs of the Jubilan region confirmed his role as an intermediary. He's named in this letter as someone who's acting on behalf of the Mag Mullah. And in this letter, the, the mullah uh, is trying to raise the people of Jubaland to his cause. And I'd like to read you some quotes from that because it gives some idea of the flavor of the Islamic involvement in this story. Now, Abdul Hassan's letter to the Somali of Jubaland did not ask them to rise up in an open revolt, but instead invited them to betray the imperialists among them as opportunities arose. In other words, to be cunning. But if they must work with the invaders, he said, then they should resist the use of European languages, they should resist European schooling, and they should resist European religions. The English were prohibited from interfering with the practice of Islam, Abdul Hassan told his followers, though they were dangerous in many other ways, unquote. The Abyssinians, on the other hand, Hassan wrote, and I quote again, are troublesome as their government is nothing and they have no regulation or religion or law. They do as they please. <coughs> Those within their own communities who'd taken up the cause of imperialists among the Somali were to be singled out for special attention, Hassan said. And again I quote, So I warn you not to listen to the words of those people who change their religion, or to the hypocrites, or to the heathen, for they from the beginning to the end have insulted Mohammed and will be punished. He goes on further down the letter. I have heard that the Europeans want to build a house in your country of Jubaland, where they can raise their flag. When I heard this, I felt it to be an evil business. But if your faith is not strong and you are not strong, in other words, if you're not in a secure position, then follow them if you must. But make the day be night and teach your children the Quran and our law when you can. Do not teach them the writing of Europeans or their language, for those two things are the beginning of all our troubles. It's a very subtle letter, very cunning command. Don't rise in open revolt, wait your chance. And in the meantime, do what you can to subvert. Now, in all the work I've done over the years in, in sort of on intelligence history, I mean, I've never seen a letter like this. It's quite astonishing in its openness and its frankness. The letter concludes with a request for intelligence to be provided on the strength and positions of European forces to Hassan. And he also calls for solidarity. Again, I quote, anyone who can inform me with certainty of any facts, I will give him 100 she-camels, five horses, one rifle and one revolver. Be absent when the Europeans come to your place. Do not receive wages from them. Do not stay with them unless you fear trouble. And if you are forced to stay with them, when prayer time comes, go and pray. Do not obey their commands. Do not fear them even if they threaten to kill you. And if they do that, then send me word at once. So a call for solidarity and a, and a command that he will not 
betray his own people, he will try and protect them. Now, in response to these threats from the Mullah, the British poured more men and resources yet into Jubaland, establishing a large gar garrison at Luk in the far north on your map to preempt any incursions from these dangerous Ogadenis. But the collector at Luke Jenna was killed in an attack and the post looted only a few months after it was set up, again with suspect intelligence in the way. So <clears throat> let me come quickly towards the end of the narrative. By around 1908, the British had given up any pretense to actually establish sovereignty or administration in this area. They were too busy simply trying to cope with the extent of rebellion and dissent. They'd learned that they could not trust anyone, that they'd not really built allies with anyone who actually mattered in terms of the politics of this region. By 1910, Abdur Rahman Mursal was in open league with rebels and was stirring other clans and groups against the British and indeed against the Italians, because at this point they discover the Italians had also been paying him a wage. Then in uh, February 1916, Abdul Rahman Mursal organizes a major attack on the main British upcountry up garrison at Serenli, which is overrun. And the armory is seized, virtually all the forces are killed, including the European commanding officers. That event um, really amounts to an open rebellion. And Jubaland remains in that state of open rebellion until the British leave in December 1924. <coughs> Following that attack, and because of it, the British establish a new battalion of the King's African Rifles, the 5th KAR, the notorious 5th KAR, who were established with predominantly Somali platoons raised in Kenya, in Isiolo mainly, to then go back into Jubaland to deal with the Somali problem in Jubaland. So 5th KAR, is, is, it's a mixed battalion, but it's mostly initially Somali. There are at least four Somali companies set up. It was thought that these would be suitable for deployment, unquote, in Jubaland for the obvious reasons. And it was this new battalion that mounted a large punitive campaign to take revenge for Serenli that ran throughout much of 1917, with local Somali groups being harried and pilloried throughout the year, their stock stolen, their homesteads burned, and so on. 11th of January 1918, as that period is coming to an end, one of those Somali platoons of the 5th KR mutinies near Lug. They murder their officers and they flee to Mursal and the Murah to the north, taking with them their rifles, a Lewis gun, and boxes containing more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition. December 1924. Jubaland, still in this state of rebellion and under martial law, is blissfully and gleefully handed over to the Italians. <coughs> okay, let me come to the discussion. And I'm just going to comment in the discussion on a few more contemporary events to which some of what I've said might have a bearing. A century on from these events, Jubaland is again in the throes of armed struggle today in what some see as a war against another kind of imperialism. 
Kismayo and its hinterland are today controlled by the alliance of Somali militias that we have come to know as Al-Shabaab, <coughs> a group believed to have links with Al-Qaeda. As war has heightened throughout southern Somalia over the past four years, since the Ethiopian invasion and seizure of Mogadishu sent the militants scurrying to the south, a flood of refugees have moved westwards from the Juba Valley, crossing the border into modern Kenya. There, the refugee camps are overflowing, and towns such as Garissa and Wajir have swelled beyond bursting point with the influx of migrants. A recent census in Kenya counted the Somali population to be above 2 million, more than half of these being regarded as illegal migrants who've crossed into Kenya as a result of Somalia's troubles. Amid tales of al-Shabaab recruitment in the towns of northern Kenya, in those refugee camps, and even in the district of Eastleigh in Kenya's capital city of Nairobi, the Kenyan government and their allies now view this as their most pressing security issue in the entire region. Jubaland is back in the news. In early 2010, the Kenyan army recruited over 2,000 Kenya Somalis who have since been trained at Archer's Post and in Manyani. Described locally as the Somali Regiment, it seems that this is intended that these troops should deal with the border problems along Kenya's Jubaland frontier. Some local analysts have even suggested that an invasion and reoccupation of Jubaland may be planned. Army spokespersons have been keen to point out that the Juba River forms, and I quote, a natural boundary that might be defended against incursion, unquote. And if Kenya really is to develop the Lamu Basin just to the south as is planned with new port facilities, an airport, a new railway line, then the security of this remote region will indeed come into sharper focus for the modern Kenyan government. So, Kenya's forgotten province has been rediscovered, even if no one yet seemed to realise it was once part of the country. I'm waiting for one of the generals to discover this and start using it in the arguments. But before the Kenyan army embarks <coughs> upon an invasion of southern Somalia, which, by the way, I think would be a very bad idea, an invasion that I think, if it went ahead, would be spearheaded by a third force of Somali, as has been described, they might do well, I think, to reflect upon the history of Jubaland in these early years of the 20th century. Like Afghanistan today, the history of conflicts in southern Somalia may well have something to teach us. And I was certainly, that point was impressed upon me talking to Rob Johnson, the fellow All Souls, who's a military historian of Afghanistan. I, I was inspired by some of what I've said tonight by just talking to him about the resonances of past conflicts in the Afghani situation. Of course, history, to think that history can teach us lessons is perhaps a little fatuous. And I wouldn't suggest for a moment that the events of the early 1900s are going to be the same as those of the early 21st century. But I think there may be things in this story that Kenyan military commanders could learn about local notions of sovereignty, for example, among the Somali, about political affiliations and what they mean, about how local politics is organized and what motivates it and what mobilizes it and what sustains it, about the likely lo local um, loyalty of locally recruited forces, 
for whom service in the Kenyan army may in effect seem little different than any other militia. The word on the streets of Eastleigh is that those going to the Kenyan army as recruits are only being paid $4 more than those going to Al-Shabaab. Does it really matter? An ideology doesn't seem to have anything to do with it whatsoever. And also perhaps about the cost of retaining security and administering such an area over the long term. How would Kenya sustain such an adventure? But also perhaps about the perils of intelligence gathering in so hostile an environment. I've been very struck by doing some, some work with, the, with AFRICOM and with the British military by the fact that I, I, I think modern intelligence is a lot better than it was in 1900, you'll be pleased to hear, but maybe not as much better as you think it should be. <laughs> so now, as in the early 1900s, imperial interference in Jubaland is stimulating a backlash for which Islam is again the rallying call. And a little bit like Abdurrahman Marsal and the Mullah, we have sheikhs and others in this region making calls to the flag of Islam. These calls are not necessarily fundamentalist. They're not necessarily aligned to any international movement that is pro or anti-anything. They are local. They are aimed at keeping foreigners out of their affairs and out of their business. And they're mobilized by local issues, local concerns. So resistance to foreign incursion is really what I think lies behind much of what we see today, and I think was what lay behind much of what we saw in the early 1900s. Thank you very much.